with this temptation. Now, um, as a human being, Jesus faced temptations. Just like you and I, he faced temptations. Uh, Some people want to say that, well, Jesus was never actually tempted. Um, He was only tested. Well, really, the difference when you think about it between the word tempt and test is the desired outcome. (laughs) When, When you want the desired outcome to be successful, to be positive, that's a test. Any teacher who tests their student, hopefully any good teacher, wants their student to actually pass the test. That's the idea. We're testing for a positive result. Well, a temptation is really a... The same can be the same exact event with the desired result of somebody failing. So in a sense, the devil here, as we see in, the, in Jesus' 40 days in, the, in the, de- the desert here, is tempting Jesus because he wants him to fail. But it's really God, the Spirit of God, that leads him out there who is testing Jesus because the desired outcome is for him to succeed. And of course, Jesus does indeed succeed and becomes our perfect substitute, one who is a pure and spotless lamb, one who succeeds where we often fail. He is faithful. So as we look at him facing these temptations, we, we learn to overcome. <laughs> but that's not the only point here. We also learn to look to the perfect Savior, to look to the one who succeeded where we always fail, the one who could pay the price for our sin, the one who could redeem us to the Father. Look with me at Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. At Jesus' temptation in the desert. We read these words. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and we're ministering to him. Jesus is faithful in areas we often fail. Jesus is faithful in areas that we often fail. Let's look at these three temptations. And as we do so, let's think about our own lives, our own struggle with this temptation, how we do with it. But also remember to look to the faithful one. Look to the one who succeeded where we often fail. Look to the one who is our substitute. Verses 1 to 4, Jesus is faithful to prioritize God not his gifts, to prioritize God, not his gifts. Verses 5 to 7, we're going to look at Jesus is faithful to trust God, not to test him, to trust him, not to test him. And then verses 8 through 11, Jesus is faithful to worship God, not to betray him. And there is an outline in your bulletin. If you're someone who likes to take notes or just likes to have a clear picture of where we're going in, in, a, in a sermon. But look at verses 1 to 4. He's faithful to prioritize God, not his gifts. Jesus is led by the Spirit, capital S, Spirit, the Holy Spirit, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So this is ultimately 
God at work. Uh, the, the devil has no real control here. God is allowing this. and In fact, God is actually orchestrating this time. He's bringing Jesus out into the wilderness. The wilderness would not be a place full of trees and plants like we would think of a wilderness. It would be a desert place. Um, and there he's tempted by the devil. Verse 2, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, uh, he was hungry. Uh, that's an understatement. Right? I, I don't know about you guys, but if I miss a meal, <laughs> I'm pretty hungry at the end of the meal. 40 days and 40 nights. That's a long time to fast. Uh, it's uh, said that a human being can go about two months without eating before they die. So Jesus is really pushing the outer limits of what is physically possible for a human being here. Uh, Gandhi, I guess, went 21 days without food. Uh, the assumption is that Jesus probably did have water, unless this was is something supernatural. Because without water, you certainly cannot survive 40 days. But at the end of the 40 days, he was hungry. And the point is not that he wasn't hungry during the 40 days. It's just emphasizing this snapshot here. At the end of the 40 days, Jesus is hungry, and the tempter sees an opportunity. Now it's time for the tempter, who is the devil, as he's described, to come to Jesus. Now, did he come to him in some physical form? We don't know. It doesn't describe it. Is it some type of vision or whatever it is? Is it mental, emotional? Is it whatever it is? Satan is there present and tempting Jesus. And he, tests him, he tempts him by saying, if you are God's son, as you claim to be, as previously, we haven't looked at the baptism yet, we'll do that next week, but as God the Father has declared that you're God's son, well, then make these bread stones. I mean, you're hungry, right? You've got no food out here. You're going to starve to death. There's plenty of these rocks and stones here. Why don't you take one of them and make them bread? And Jesus says, no. God's word is my priority, not food. See, friends, I think it's a question of priority. Understand, there's nothing wrong with bread. In fact, after 40 days, Jesus ate. And my guess is he ate a lot. <laughs> Just like you and I would do after 40 days of fasting. Nothing wrong with actual bread. In fact, Jesus is described um, as not only eating throughout his whole ministry, but after the resurrection, the, the disciples question whether he's actually a real physical human being, because they're worried maybe just some type of ghost or something. And so what does he do? He eats in front of them to prove that he is a physical human being. Uh, Jesus talks about the final day as the wedding feast of the Lamb, in which we will celebrate by feasting, or at least that's the image used of the final celebration. Food is Good. In fact, my guess is you're going to celebrate, part of the way you're going to celebrate the birth of Christ come December 25th is by eating a lot, right? I mean, that's one of the things we do. We celebrate by having a big feast together with our families and extended you know, friends and church you know, members or whatever it is. We eat with one another. There's nothing wrong with food. The real question here, and friends, there's nothing wrong with Jesus using a miracle to create food. That's not the issue either. At one point, Jesus makes Thousands of loaves of bread. He feeds 5,000 men, not including women and children. So more like 10, 15,000 people. Another time, 4,000 men. So again, it's close to the same amount of numbers. So the idea is not that he is using something miraculous to create bread. What is the issue here? It's an issue of priority. What comes first? Is he going to be faithful to this, this testing that God has set before him to go these 40 days without food and to... Wait upon the Lord, or is he going to put food first? I think that's the issue with gluttony, by the way. That's why gluttony is a sin. Uh, nothing wrong with eating, but when you put food before other priorities, and particularly before God, 
That's what gluttony is. And it's not just food, friends. We, we can do this with any physical thing, right? Any physical thing, with stuff. That's what idolatry is by definition. It's to put anything over and above God. And Jesus refuses to put even bread above the word of God, above the Lord. And here's the problem. Here's why this is such a temptation, I think. Because God's gifts are really amazing. <laughs> All these other physical stuff that we have, those are good things that God gives us. And they are really amazing. I'll give you a few examples. Mashed potatoes. Anyone here love mashed potatoes? <laughs> mashed potatoes are a gift from God, I think. And there's nothing wrong with loving mashed potatoes. Come December 25th, my guess is you're going to eat your share full of mashed potatoes with gravy. But if that becomes more of a priority than the Lord, you have idolatry. The Himalayas are a gift from God. They're stunning. I remember when I was in Nepal, I took my son out there, and, and you know, he's not usually too impressed with physical landscape stuff. And I said, no, 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 trust me, Isaac, when you see the Himalayas, it's different. And he's like, yeah, whatever, whatever. And then we got one clear day out there where he could see the Himalayas, and even he was in shock to see the beauty of those mountains, the highest mountains in the world. The ocean is a physical blessing that God gives us, and it's beautiful. <laughs> Houses, right? Houses are, are a great gift. I'm glad we have a place to, to, to put ourselves so it doesn't get too cold or too hot or whatever it may be to, to be safe. Cars are a blessing from God. But if they become a priority over God, that's when we run into problems. Friends, what did uh, George Carlin, he's the late uh, atheist comedian, he said about uh, all this stuff, he said, what is your house? Your house is a place to keep your stuff while you go out and get more stuff, right? That's what a house is. Sometimes you got to move, you got to get a bigger house. Why? Because there's no room for your stuff anymore. That's what we do. We love our stuff. But do you love your stuff more than God? That's the question. Is it your priority? See, friends, we are always tempted to replace God in our lives with something physical. It's always a temptation. Satan always wants us to say, keep your eyes on the bread. Keep your eyes on the physical. Keep your eyes on stuff. Let that be what you live for. Let that be what consumes the majority of your attention. Let that be your focus. Let that be your God. Mike, did we get those pictures up? We did. Okay. Here's one. Here's what I would say. Think of priorities of your life like a stack of blocks. <laughs> Maybe you just need a visible, uh, visual for this. Nothing wrong with all, this, all, all the different blocks. The question is the configuration. What sits on the top? What sits on the top? Amen. <laughs> the Lord is called to sit on the top. Is Christ at the top of your set of blocks or is something else there? And the way the Bible defines idolatry is whatever is at the top, if it's not God, that very thing is really functionally your God. Uh, I like it. Uh, maybe you guys have, some of you guys have had some psychological treatment, treatment, uh, not treatment. Some of you guys have had psychological treatment. Training. Uh, you can do the next image, Mike. You may have heard of Maslow's uh, hierarchy of needs. Right? Maybe you've seen this before. And this is the way Maslow uh, described the hierarchy of needs. He said, at the very bottom level is our physiological needs. If those aren't met, we can't think of anything else. So food, air, drink, that's all, clothing, that's all physiological. That's our greatest need. If you don't have that satisfied, you won't even think about anything above there. Next is your physical safety. <laughs> so after you get your, your uh, physiological needs, now you want to feel safe. You want to feel like 
you're, you're, you're physically safe from harm. Then after that is you want a sense of love and belong, a sense of community and relationship with other people. And above that is esteem. You want to feel as if you have some self-worth. And the top one is a kind of a tricky term, self-actualization. You want to feel like you have meaning in life. Well, here's the point. Jesus said, get rid of all of it. I'll take away the physiological, take away the food, take away the water. Take away the safety. The wilderness would be one of the most dangerous places for a human to be out there in Israel. Not only wild animals, but thieves and marauders or whatever else. And then take away the love and belonging. I'm going out completely by myself. <laughs> Nobody with me. You spend 40 days entirely by yourself. That does weird things to you, friends. It's a long time to be alone. Take away the sense of esteem. And just leave me with nothing but the Lord. And he's enough. What a perfect illustration, friends, of the removing of anything that would even tempt us to idolatry and saying, yes, God is enough. I need nothing more than him. Friends, how are you doing with this temptation? Who sits at the top of your stack of blocks? Is it the Lord or is it something else? Look at the next test. Verses five to seven, Jesus is faithful to trust God not to test him, to trust God not to test him. Verses five to seven, the devil then takes him to the holy city, that would be Jerusalem. He takes him to the temple, which is in Jerusalem, and then takes him to the highest part, the pinnacle of the temple. Now did he actually physically take Jesus from the wilderness and take him to the temple? I don't know, again, is this a vision uh, or something going on there? We're not sure, but at least that's where uh, uh, Matthew describes him taking Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple. And he says to him, if you are the son of God, again, questioning, are you really, if you're, If you're really the Son of God, show us, show me. Throw yourself down. Prove to yourself and me that you really are the Son of God. Jump. And then, Satan, of course, is very tricky here. What does he do? He quotes Scripture. (laughs) He quotes Scripture to Jesus. Satan has no problem quoting Scripture. He loves to take it out of context and twist it and turn it, but he can quote Scripture. Uh, He quotes Psalm 91. Uh, It says, He will command his angels concerning you, meaning over the Messiah, on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now, everything that Satan just quoted to Jesus is true, by the way. God's word is true. He didn't just choose the one passage of scripture that's not true and then use that. No, it's absolutely true. If something were to happen to Jesus, if he was at a high place and he were to fall, and it wasn't God's time for him to go, God would have or could have sent angels to rescue him. But that's a difference. There's a big difference between that and actually testing God by jumping to prove a point. That would have been sin in and of itself, even if God had rescued him. So what does Jesus do? Jesus quotes scripture right back to him. In fact, you'll notice in each of the three temptations, what does Jesus do? He quotes scripture back to Satan. (laughs) I'm going to rely on something solid and firm. You want to hear the truth, Satan? He quotes actually all three of them from the book of Deuteronomy. He quotes the scripture right back to Satan. That's the truth that he leans on. But he says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Friends, here's a wise, here's a wise uh, word of advice. Don't test God, all right? <laughs> Never a good idea to test God. And some of you guys who know your Bibles would say, but Gideon tested God, didn't he? I mean, he put out the fleece and he, yeah, don't do that, okay? That's the, that's the bottom line there. That describes what Gideon did. It doesn't say it was good or bad. Don't test God, not a good idea. Uh, there's a big difference between trusting God and testing God. Okay, uh, If Jesus fell and it wasn't God's time, as we said, God could have sent angels, and that would have been fine. 
That's not a test. That's trusting that God would protect him no matter what. In fact, at the end of this 40 day, at the end of this temptation, what happens? The angels come and they minister to Jesus. The very thing that happens in God's time and in God's way. But here, to, call, to, call, to force God's hand by testing it would have been a problem. When we face hard times, and we do, and we always will, when we face trials, you trust God through them. He's trustworthy, and God does show up. He shows up sometimes in amazing, miraculous, supernatural ways. But that's a big difference between doing that and testing God and trying to force His hand. I think about it, friends. Who tests who? Typically, a superior tests an inferior. Uh, that's how it works. Teachers test a student. An engineer tests a product. When you, t- when you go uh, to buy a car, what do you do? You take a car for a test drive. Uh, can you, you, don't, you can't imagine um, a student walking up to a teacher and saying, here's my test for you. Right? That wouldn't probably go over too well. Or a car, uh, someone saying, a car dealer saying, I'm sorry, but... Uh, Uh, This car just doesn't really care for you. You can't buy it. I mean, that just wouldn't go over, right? The the greater tests the lesser. We don't test God. God tests us. You know, sometimes you hear people say, Okay, God, if you are really God, then you need to do this or that. I don't know about you. Just my own experience. I've never seen God respond well to that. Okay? I've never seen God respond well to the, If you do this, God, then I will do this. Maybe you got a story to tell me where that worked out for you, and I'd love to hear it, but I've never heard or seen in my own life a story where that works out good, where you tell God, I'm putting you to the test. If you do this, then I'm going to do this. He's God, not us. Friends, let's be faithful to trust God, not test Him, as Jesus does here. God is amazing. He loves to answer prayer. Watch Him do it all the time. He loves to provide for our needs, sometimes in just miraculous, supernatural ways that are just amazing to sit back and say, thank you, God. He works in ways that shock me all the time. But we trust Him, not test Him. It's all in His time. He's God. He works on His terms and in His ways. He's not a genie. That we get to call up and conjure up wishes to him and that he has to come to our obedience. No, he is God. And we can trust him. I think of Job going through all that suffering in the Old Testament. What does Job say? He doesn't say, it doesn't put God to the test. Instead, he says, Though he slay me, yet will I worship him. In other words, if this ends in God ultimately taking my life, yet will I worship him. Whatever the outcome, whatever the end is, I'm here to serve him, no matter what. He's not on trial. I am. Friends, I I pray often that God uses First Baptist Church to reach thousands. (laughs) Genuinely, I pray that. I really want to see that, that God expands our influence, reach our city, and to change the whole community in a powerful way. But the reality is, friend, either way, I'm in. If God decides not to do something mighty and great here, the way I'm I'm hoping and praying and expecting, that's okay too. He's God, not me. There's no test. He works in his time and in his way. Friends, we don't test God, we trust him. He's the one who's ultimately in control. Jesus is faithful not to test him. And then this last one, verses 8 to 11, Jesus is faithful to worship God, not to betray him. To worship God, not to betray him. 
Again, the devil took him, verse 8, to a high, very high mountain. So now he's even higher than the pinnacle of the temple. And he shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And there is, if it's not obvious, there is no mountain in Israel in which you can see Rome. Okay, so there, there's no actual mountain that you can physically see the kingdoms of the world. So again, this is something visionary, I think, that's going on here. Uh, do you see the ends of the world and their glory? And this is what Satan says, all these I will give you. I'll give you all of this. If you fall down and you worship me. And you might say, well, that's kind of crazy for Satan to even think this, this is going to work. But in some ways, this is Satan saying, I'm going to put all my chips on the table. This is all I got. So I'm giving everything I got in this last one here. Now, could he have actually delivered? And he has a lot of power. It seems like God allows him to have a certain level of influence in this world and over the kingdoms of this world. But keep in mind, he's also a liar. So I don't know whether he could actually deliver any of this. I just know this. He's a liar and not to be trusted anyway. So what would happen if Jesus did actually take the deal? I have no idea what would have happened. I'm just grateful and thankful and I I know that he did not. But Jesus sees this very temptation and it sees that it crosses the line. In fact, it reveals Satan's ultimate motive, the the desire to be worshipped himself. And Jesus says in response, I like the message translation here, Beat it. <laughs> I've had enough. Gone. Go away. That's it. You're, 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 you've so far crossed the line at this point in time. It's time for you to leave. And so Jesus quotes scripture again. You worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. God is the only object of our worship. And Satan leaves. But think about it, friends. Think about this temptation. You might say, I don't know how, temp- how tempting that really would have been. But think about this. You're starving. You're weak. You're completely alone. You're at your limit. And the devil makes a good deal. (laughs) Or seemingly a good deal. And Jesus could have maybe reasoned here. Well, if I got all this power over these kingdoms, I could then use it to serve God, right? I could actually take all this power and I could use it to influence for good. I could use it to help the poor. I could use it to transform these kingdoms to be more godly. And I could use it for ultimately for positive reasons. Only on the one condition that I betray God, that I reject Him, and then I leave Him. Friends, ultimately, as we see here, you can see that the, the temptation here is to worship the devil. And many of you guys are saying, I not really a temptation for me. Although some people are, are more than welcome, are more, more than welcome this very temptation. It reminds me of a famous story of Goethe's Faust. And he goes, no uh, Faust, if you know your literature there. Uh, Goethe, uh, Faust makes a deal with the devil. He gets tired of this life and he says, you give me the power and the knowledge to enjoy all the pleasures of this world and my soul then ultimately belongs to you. And the devil makes the deal. He enjoys 24 years of incredible pleasure. And there's two ways the story ends, uh, two different ways ultimately. And uh, one is that uh, he begs for mercy from God at the end and recognizes the, the, what he has done, and God shows mercy and saves him. And the more traditional way, the way that uh, Gute wrote, is in the end, hell claims his soul, and his foolish deal has to be followed through. <laughs> it's interesting, friends. I mean, uh, like I said, majority of people don't uh, take the temptation so outright. Uh, but there is a, a famous uh, musician, if I mentioned her name, you'd probably recognize it, but I won't. Uh, and she decided to use this language. Now, she probably meant it. 
cliche or idiomatically, but she said, you know, I grew up as a gospel singer. I wanted to be the next Amy Grant. I want to be this nice next Christian singer, but that didn't work out. So I made a deal with the devil and sold my soul. Now, that's her language. She herself decided to use, interestingly enough. But I think many of you guys would say, look, again, this is not really my temptation. But I think that misses, I think that may miss the point. You see, for, for, for the devil, it's really inconsequential to him whether you actually worship him. The real goal for him is that you don't worship God. <laughs> that's the real, he just wants you to betray God. You leave him, then he wins at the end. That's really his ultimate goal. And we see that again and again, even in Scripture. Paul describes, the Apostle Paul describes one of his co-workers, Demas. He says, Demas, in love with this world, has left me. What did Jesus describe in the parable of the sower, the different uh, seeds that fall on different ground? One falls on the thorns that choke it out and destroy the word and the faith there. What is, how does he describe the thorns, the worries of this world and the deceit of wealth? As Jesus said, if you could exchange the whole world for your soul, what would you benefit in the end? Friends, the question here, the temptation here is, would you ever leave the Lord? Would you ever leave him? Would you ever go back to the world? Would you ever leave Christ? And I have to say, friends, I've seen this happen again and again. Somebody's faith grows colder and colder and colder. And over time, they walk away from the Lord. I mentioned that song that I love, Come Thou Fount, was the third verse that goes, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Friends, where we often fail, Jesus succeeded. He's offered everything that this world has to offer. And he basically spits on it and says, never. Not even close to worth leaving the worship of the one true living God. Jesus is faithful, friends, in ways that we often fail. As we said, this is what kicks off his adult life in ministry. This test is what really starts his whole three-year ministry that ends in the cross and in the resurrection. Why? Because he is the substitute that we need. Where we fail, where Israel failed, there's a reason why he spends 40 days in the desert, because that's exactly, uh, Israel spent 40 years in the desert, and Moses spent 40, years up on, 40 days up on Mount Sinai. He's, he's calling to mind the same imagery. But where oftentimes Israel failed in the desert, that's why Jesus, by the way, quoted Deuteronomy all three times to bring back the, the memory of their Israel, uh, Israel's wandering in the desert, where they often failed on these very specific temptations. Their idolatry of food and their willingness to uh, turn from the Lord and so forth. He succeeds. And more than that, friends, where we fail, <laughs> where we fail, our love of stuff, our testing of God rather than trusting Him. When we let our worship grow cold, where we fail, he succeeds. Christmas celebrates Jesus. The baby who became man, 
the man who became our Savior. Jesus is faithful in areas that we often fail for us. Pray with me. Well, our gracious Father, the point of this sermon, I think of the point of this passage, is not merely to make us feel guilty and to recognize our sin, oh, that's part of it, to recognize areas that we have not succeeded when we face temptations, but rather to help us look to the Savior, to look to the one who succeeded where we failed, to look to Jesus. Lord, we thank you so much that this Christmas, what we celebrate, is not all the gifts, although we are grateful, Lord, that you have provided so generously to us. But we look to the giver. We look to the one who sent his son into this world, who became our perfect substitute, who bore our sin, who died our death, so that through faith in him we are united with him for all eternity. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you have done. Thank you for we get to celebrate the grace that we've received in you. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's sing to prepare our hearts for the Lord's day.